Amen. Well, good morning. You may be seated. I always love it when Wes points out the exits. It reminds me of flying, you know, the exits back here. By the way, if you feel a little faint during the sermon, oxygen masks will fall out of the ceiling. And if I happen to land this sermon in the water, uh, your, your seat cushion will serve as a flotation device, just in case. You never know how it's going to land, actually, here. So, anyway, it's good to be with you here today. <clears throat> Uh, after uh, that passage of Scripture out of the book of James was written, I feel kind of like I'm in an old West, Western movie where the piano player in the saloon, you know, and a gunfight breaks out and he cries out, Don't shoot me, I'm just the piano player. Because God wrote this passage, he inspired James to put it down, and James put it down and distributed it. And Kelly read it, so I'm way down on the list here, okay? If you find this upsetting you, I'm way down on the list here. But uh, it is uh, one thing about uh, preaching expositionally through a book of the Bible is you cannot avoid the difficult portions. And you will not find in a health and wealth prosperity gospel church that they ever preach this passage, believe me. And so we come today to this passage, and I have two questions for you. First one is, how rich are you? How rich are you? And the second question is, before you answer that, let me ask you the second one. How rich do you feel? How rich do you feel? Those are two different questions. If you're like most people, you'll probably give different answers to those questions. For one thing, rich is a relative term, isn't it? Uh, Compared to Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg, those guys... uh, We don't feel rich at all, do we? And our bank accounts don't look anything like them. We are, compared to those guys, probably all dirt poor. uh, But Bill Gates is not the starting point of what uh, James is talking about here today. But let's do the math another way. I've given you a link on the bottom of the sermon uh, outline. uh, And I give you permission, if you have your smartphone, if you have a tablet and you hook up to the Internet here, Go to globalrichlist.com. I know you're going to do it anyway, so you may as well just do it. And in there, you pick the, uh, uh, they'll ask you for uh, the country you're living in, what, what you get paid in, whether it's dollars or euros or ruples or whatever it is. And uh, then you put in your net annual income. And then you push uh, a little button at the bottom there, and it'll tell you where you rank in the world's population with annual income. Another way you can do it is with your wealth. In other words, you may be cash poor, but you may own a couple houses and some vehicles and land and other things. You can do it that way also, and it will rank you uh, in wealth uh, accumulation with the world's population. Now, remember the world's population. I looked this up yesterday. In 2019, it is uh, closely estimated that the world contains 7.7 billion people. 7.7 7.7 billion. When we're talking those kind of numbers, it, it leaves me way behind. But all you have to do is go to a place like Mexico City or Hong Kong or New York City or even Seattle, and uh, you start feeling a bit crowded, don't you? But there's 7.7 billion people in the world. But if you go to Global Rich List, you enter your annual net income, <clears throat> and you push the button, and it's a bit unnerving if you've never done that before. And if you've just done it on your phone today, Here are some startling results. 
If your net income is $60,000 a year, you are in, you are in the upper 0.2% of everybody in the world. The upper 0.2% at $60,000 a year. Say it's $50,000 a year, you're in the upper 0.3% of the world's uh, income. If you make $40,000, you're in the upper 0.6% uh, of that. Suppose we drop the figure down to $20,000 a year, that puts you in the upper 4%. That means that 96% of the people in the world make less than you do. In other words, you make more at $10,000 or $20,000 a year than 96% of those 7.7 billion people. Let's go down to $10,000 a year. This puts you in the upper 16%. You make more than 84% of the people in the world. These are sobering statistics because we read a passage like James in chapter 5 where he talks about the rich, and we think he's talking about somebody else, somebody like Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg and so on, Warren Buffett and so on. Uh, the Gallup organization who does the polling, they surveyed world income, and they discovered that 22% of the world's population lives on less than $1.25 per day. And they discovered that 34% of the world's population lives on less than $2 a, bit a day. When we were in Indonesia in the Samongdong tribe, which is an indigenous tribe on the island of Borneo, which is West Kalimantan now, uh, those people uh, in their income were basically a dollar a day per family. And so $300, $350 a year was their net income in a year's time. Uh, we can say it another way. The average household income, annual income, is around $65,000 in the U.S. Of course, I recognize that varies by location, by region, uh, by population group, but that's a starting point anyway. If you live in the United States, uh, you should be glad because you're in the upper 1% of the world's income. Upper 1%. What I'm saying is this, is that we are rich. Even what we would consider the poorest among us are still wealthy compared to the rest of the world. Uh, we probably don't feel like it, and we probably don't think we are, especially when tax time approaches but in absolute terms, we are wealthy. If you have a cell phone, a computer, a home, a bed, a closet full of clothes, a car, you are rich compared to most of the world. And uh, there's really no need to feel ashamed about that or to dance around the truth. If you've got food in your pantry, clean water to drink, you're doing better than millions of people around the world. Millions of people around the world. Uh, Luke uh, chapter 12, verse 48, in the context there, uh, Luke is talking about, basically about the nation of Israel. But in Luke 12, 48, there's this one principle. Uh, <clears throat> Everyone who has been given much, much will be required, and to whom they entrusted much, to him they will ask all the more. And there's a biblical principle that when we've been blessed with much, much is required of us. And this is what James is talking about in this passage. The question is not, do we have money? But the question is, is what is our money doing to us? What is the money doing to us? And this is a question which is pinching my soul even this week as I looked at this passage and prepared. 
Because ultimately, God gives us all things, and he has blessed our country richly. He has blessed us materially very richly. And yet, as one South American theologian said, that we have great uh, abundance of poverty in South America, but you Americans have a poverty of abundance in your souls. And so James is trying to correct that. Uh, We talked about knowing God's will. You know, if God is the provider of everything we have, in fact, the Bible declares that everything we have comes from his hand. Even though you may believe you're very skilled and good at what you do, and that may very much be so, and yet ultimately God is the one who provides what we have in our bank accounts, our retirement accounts, in our portfolios, in our homes, everywhere. God owns it all. He's the one. We are simply given it for a time. We are simply stewards of what God has given us. So that begs the question, does God have a will for that material possessions? And yes, he does. And of course, as I said last couple of weeks ago, there's three basic w- issues with God's will. The first one is, is that there must be a willingness to do and follow God's will once it is revealed to us, a willingness to follow his will. And that's where things rub, don't they? That's where things get right down to the nitty-gritty of life, is do I want to do this? Because we do have a choice. We're not robots. We have the ability to make free choices. Secondly, we must realize that God's will is always in harmony with his word. It's never disharmonious with his word. It never contradicts the word, because his word, will is revealed in his word. We also need to understand, in conjunction to that, is that God's will for us is his best plan, and God is righteous, just, makes no mistakes, and he wants us to live this full, enjoyable life. But what is his will? And he wants it the best thing for his people and for his glory. And third, we must come to him earnestly in prayer, seeking guidance. These steps will lead us directly to the will of God as we read his word, pray about it, as we make decisions. And as we make decisions, how to use the riches that God has blessed us with. And how we use those things. You know, these words, again, in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, seem so harsh that we instinctively assume he must be talking about the other guy, right? It's about that guy, not about me and my life. We think of the super rich, the uber rich uh, on the Forbes billionaires list. You know, Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, all of those guys. And that's who we think he's talking about here. And yet, does James 5, 1 through 6 apply to them? Of course it does. Yes, it does. And it also applies to the riches of the rich and also those of us in the top 1% of the world's wealth. That's you and me, as you can tell from that one little test on uh, globalrichlist.com. Even though some of us or many of us probably considered middle class in our country, That is really a recent phenomena in the whole history of time. In ancient Israel, there was no such thing as a middle class. You were either very, very rich or you were very, very poor. There was no in-between. There were a lot of poor people at the bottom and not many uh, at the top. And very similar to the billionaires list, if you will. Uh, You were either rich in ancient Israel or you were poor. And there were a lot more poor people in ancient Israel, by the way. And uh, we should note one more thing before we jump into this text. The Bible talks about money a lot. Uh, If you go through Scripture, you'll see that you can find something about money almost on every page of the Bible. 
money is life and life is money. Ecclesiastes 10.19 even says money is the answer for everything. And that sounds a little jarring to our souls, but it is true. You can't very, live very long on this planet if you don't have some form to pay for your food and buy bread. You either have it, save it, earn it, borrow it, or perhaps steal it. But money is the currency of life. Without it, all of us would be in big trouble. Uh, you know, if I were to hold up a $20 bill in my hand, is that $20 bill evil? If I were to hold that up, I just don't have one on me right now. But if I were to hold that up, is that bill evil? No, it is neutral. Those bills that we have are just ink on paper. Uh, They have no moral value. It is what we do with the money. It is how we use that money. That's neither good nor evil, but it's how we use it. I can buy a man who needs a a meal. I can buy him food, or I can use the money to buy illegal drugs. You know, the choice comes down to the heart Uh, The question is not, should we make money? That's not the question here. We all need that to survive. The real question is, is how do we use what God has given us? And so if you listen to this passage, as you listen carefully, of course, we know James is talking about ethical living. This whole letter, it's not a, a, a letter about doctrine. It's a letter about how to live out the doctrine we say we believe. It should make a difference in our lives. Remember, Paul wrote Romans, and that's about saving faith. James is about serving faith. Uh, Paul in Romans is talking about how to know that you're going to go to heaven, that Jesus Christ paid it all, and we can stand before a righteous, holy God and be accepted by him because he has declared us righteous in Jesus Christ. But in James, if you say you've done that, if you've believed in him for everlasting life, then this is how you should live. And this James gets right into who we are as a people. Uh, This is very relevant to our day and age. In this passage, this is a denunciation of rich people, basically. If you've listened carefully, they use their wealth to hurt the poor. It reads like something that an Old Testament prophet would say. In fact, he begins, come now or listen up is what he's saying. And this is serious stuff. And this sounds like an Old Testament prophet like Zechariah or Ezekiel, who is denouncing the people in, in, the, in their times. It's a scathing indictment of the rich. It offers no hope but it simply announces judgment from God. There's no call for repentance here. There's no good news at all. These words are so harsh that we instinctively assume he must be talking about the other guy and not about us. But James warns us. He gives us four warnings in this passage. The first one is, is beware of arrogance. Look at verses one through three. First of all, in verse one, we can have consternation from wealth, from our stuff, if you will, from our bank accounts, the trust in our wealth. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Uh, He is looking towards the future, and he's building a case that eventually God is going to make all things right. Jesus Christ is the righteous judge. He is the righteous king. He is going to make all things right. So James, in a sense, is looking to the future. And only God knows when that future will come, when that moment will come. But he will make all things right in that. The point is, is that these people that he's talking about here have all their trust, their arrogance in their belongings, in their money, in their uh, resources. And that is the key question for you and I. You know, we have resources, but if we start treating them as the source of our lives, When they go away, then our whole lives crumble. 
And that's what happens here and what James is referring to here. Is your bank account, is your house, are your possessions, are they your source or are they a resource? God is our source. I may remind you, must remind you, that Jesus Christ is the source. He is our sufficiency for day-to-day life. He is the one who gives us the next breath of our lungs and the beat of our heart. He numbers our days. He knows the future. But if we start treating our bank accounts as the source uh, when there's a financial collapse and a bank account goes away, then life crumbles, doesn't it? But if it's simply a resource and it goes away, we have not lost anything, really, because our source is Jesus Christ. So remember that as we go through this passage. Because if your bank account, your belongings, your riches are your source, you're in for trouble. And that's what uh, James is talking about here, about them weeping and howling for your miseries which are coming upon you. Because they are trusting in their resources as their source and not trusting in God. In verses 2 through 3, there's a corrosion of wealth. There is this corrosion that takes place. There's a temporary nature of wealth. Look at verse 2 through 3 again. Your riches have rotted, your garments have become moth-eaten, your gold and silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you've stored up your treasure. Basically, in the first century, there were three main indicators of wealth in that time, in this culture. You could grow crops in the, in, as an agricultural uh, farmer, or you could sell fabric as a producer of fabric because that was needed, or you could store up gold and silver if you were in that position. And James says each of these indicators, your crops have rotted away. You know, and storing those up, storing those up, have rotted away. There's an annual supply that God in nature has provided, and some people try to beat God out of that, thinking that by storing up their crops, they will have the source of a future income. The garments are moth-eaten. We think about that picture. Uh, I remember my mother putting out mothballs in the closets, and they smelled so terrible uh, because she didn't want the sweaters to be eaten by moths. I don't know. Are moths extinct now? We don't do that anymore. I don't know what happened. But uh, your garments, and there was rich, fine clothes, you know, they're all they're going to be moth-eaten. And then the gold and silver is corroded. He uses the, the New American Standard uses the term rust, and we know it doesn't rust, but it does corrode. And it's a figurative thing that hoarding it is useless. Hoarding it is useless. And so... Beware of arrogance in what we have and what God has blessed us with uh, in that. I might add, too, when you look at the globalrichlist.com, it is no wonder that people in the two-thirds world are trying to make their way to Western Europe and North America. When you really think about it, when uh, probably 7 billion people have less to live on than you and I, if you were in their shoes and your children were starving, wouldn't you want to get somewhere where you could make a living and feed your family? Uh, I recognize that immigration and illegal immigration, all of that is a big ball of wax, and it's difficult uh, for people in government, for people in churches to deal with, and yet you need to have some compassion and empathy for people who are at our borders wanting a better life because we would be there too, and we are enjoying what we're enjoying well, one sin leads to another sin. Greed leads to robbery. Robbery. Uh, look at verse 4. Beware, second warning, and not only beware of your arrogance, but beware of hard-heartedness. Look at verse 4. 
<clears throat> verse 4, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which was withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Uh, the cry of those abused. Uh, James asks us to consider the evil abuse of power. And we see that around us. It's a historical fact that the rich get richer on the backs of the laborer. And that tends to be the case. In the first century, a farm worker were essentially day laborers. Uh, we still have day laborers, my, uh, my understanding is, and might call them migrant workers in today's terminology. They were hired by the owner and paid by the day. And so we have a rich man, you can imagine, with a vast estate who needed his crops brought in. And he'd hire these day laborers to bring the crops in for him. And, uh, but at the end of each day, he would fail to pay them, is the picture here. And a worker arrives on Monday, the, the owner promises to pay him the next day, and then the next day, and finally at the end of the week, there's still no pay. And he's taking advantage of this, and this man, this day laborer, grumbles, but he has no recourse because the wealthy man has all the resources and the ability, even in a court of law, uh, whereas the day laborer does not. The system is basically rigged against him. And so the cry of those abused... We need to be careful that we do not become hard-hearted. That is the warning here. In our wealth, when you compare yourself to this other 7.6 billion people or so in the world, in our wealth, we dare not become hard-hearted. You can certainly understand why people are attracted in other countries and even in our own to uh, uh, socialism, uh, to breaking down the wealthy and uh, sharing the wealth all over, even though we know that doesn't work. But yet... The cry of those abused. And the cry reaches the Lord of hosts, it says here. Uh, that, that, that word Seboath is translated the armies in heaven and on earth. There is no rich person who can get away with injustice. No matter how many uh, resources they have, injustice will not last forever. Here's the message in one sentence. The man who cheats the poor will be dealt with by God who is big enough to do something about it. God is big enough to do something about it. Wealth can protect us from many things on this earth, but it cannot protect us from the judgment of God. He sees, he hears, and he knows. Beware of hard-heartedness in the blessings God has poured out upon us. So greed leads to theft, and it can lead to indulgence. Verse 5, beware of extravagance. Look at verse 5. <clears throat> you have lived luxuriously on the earth, and let a life of wanton pleasure and have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. In other words, there's copious amounts of self-indulgence. I remember sitting at a conference in Chicago at uh, Torrey Gray Auditorium on the campus of Moody Bible Institute. And uh, the speaker, uh, I don't even remember his message other than this part. He said, he called out, he said, when does the size of a house become sinful? When does the size of a house become sinful? And we all know from watching the reality shows on TV that there are people with 20,000-square-foot homes and 1,000-square-foot homes and the tiny houses. Can you imagine 400 square feet, you know, with five kids and a dog? But, <laughs> but he asked, when does a house become sinful in its size? And it was just dead silence. And finally, and I appreciated this guy way in the back, he yelled out, when it's bigger than mine. And that's true. You know, that's how we view the world, isn't it, in this comparison thing. And so beware of extravagance. There's a cause and effect in this third warning about bewaring of this type of life. 
Because the rich have lived in luxury, they have fattened their hearts for the day of slaughter. The heart of the problem is always the problem of the heart. And this is a picture of how, uh, when you think about it, I think about this every time I see all the beautiful cattle out in the range, you know, and uh, over at my son-in-law's ranch and the Angus, and and they're getting fattened up. But you know why? Because they're going to be steaks and burger and everything down at the grocery store. That's the whole purpose of fattening up. And that's the picture here is that the heart problem is they are fattening up themselves for this day of slaughter. There will be judgment. There will be judgment of this. Uh, Money is morally neutral, as we've talked about. Having money is not intrinsically good or evil. The poor are not more righteous because of their poverty. And the rich are not necessarily more evil because of their wealth. Righteousness does not depend on the size of your bank account. In fact, in Jesus' time here on earth, the Pharisees were teaching that if you had a lot of wealth, it must mean you're righteous because God is blessing you, and the poor are unrighteous because he must not be blessing them because they're unrighteous. And that was wrong, and Jesus and Paul and the disciples taught against that. But you know what? Riches can trick us into thinking that we don't need God. You know, there is a fact of dependency on our daily bread. We pray for our daily bread. I remember as a new believer over in Montana in Whitefish at our church there, we'd have missionaries come through, and, uh, and I was very naive. I mean, I'd heard this stuff all my life, but they would come through, and they would talk about praying for shoes for their children and toothbrushes and toothpaste for their family. And I thought, how stupid is that? What is, what's with them? You know, a toothbrush is 98 cents or whatever. Uh, But they were praying about that. And then when we went to seminary in our second year, I was praying for shoes for my kids and toothbrushes for my family. It turned very quickly. I understood that all things come from God. And so righteousness does not depend on the size of your bank account, but riches can trick us into thinking that we don't need God. After all, if we've got enough money, we can create our own heaven here on earth. It's not real. It won't last. But money has a tremendous power to feed our delusions. So copious amounts of self-indulgence, he warns us again. And then in the end of verse 5, it's a a sarcastic remark is what he's saying. Remember, sarcasm is, is really just a cover for anger. Well, James doesn't cover his anger very well. He is angry. Believe me here. He says... In the day of slaughter, you have fattened your heart, hearts in the day of slaughter. And it's a way of picturing that just like the cattle out being fattened for slaughter, uh, those who trust in their, in their wealth are being fattened on their own for slaughter. Greed leads to theft, leads to indulgence. And finally, in verse 6, it leads to murder. This is shocking. Beware of brutality is the fourth warning. Verse 6, you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Now, in this passage, uh, some scholars think that James is just referring to the rich oppressors of the readers. Remember, these are Jewish Christians who were scattered in the persecution of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, to primarily to the east of Jerusalem. And uh, some scholars think he's addressing the rich oppressors in those communities who are oppressing them. I don't believe that. I believe, yes, it refers to all people, but there were probably some within the Jewish Christian community, the Messianic community, if you will, who were oppressing their brothers because of their wealth. And there's condemnation of the righteous in this. 
and uh, compliance by the righteous. Back uh, before the time of Christ, uh, in what's called the intertestamental period between Malachi in the Old Testament and Matthew in the New Testament, remember there were 400 years there, that one page in your Bible between the Old and New Testament, that's 400 years. And there were a lot of writings done then. And uh, there was a writer named Joshua ben Sirah, he's a Jewish man, and he wrote this uh, about the poor. He said, and I'm quoting him, The bread of the needy is the life of the poor. Whoever deprives them of it is a man of blood. To take away a neighbor's living is to murder him. To deprive an employee of his wages is to shed his blood. It's a metaphor or figure of speech, but in ancient times, uh, you know, it was customary for people to, to hold a feast, rich people, men of wealth, uh, and they sheared their sheep and slaughtered some of them to provide uh, meat for the table. And James has said they have lived in pleasure and luxury. Their heart is a day of slaughter. Uh, but then he says that these righteous men do not resist you. You know, who is the only innocent man? The only innocent man. I think James is picturing the Lord Jesus Christ here and looking back at the crucifixion. It is often said that James, remember James is the half, the younger half-brother of Jesus. Remember, Mary had other children by Joseph. James is one of them. He became the leader of the Jerusalem church. But it is often said that James never mentions the crucifixion in his writings. And it's true in a literal sense. But he may be thinking of Jesus here when he writes about the innocent man. Behind the poor man stands the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He was truly the innocent man. Though he'd done no wrong, he was sentenced to death. He was murdered to satisfy the bloodlust and the rejection of the nation Israel and for our sins. And God did, Jesus Christ did it willingly. He does not, did not resist his accusers. He did not resist at all, not because he couldn't, but because he didn't. He was helpless. He was not helpless against those who mistreated him. But Jesus had the power, all the power of the world to not do that. They scourged him. He didn't retaliate. The soldiers put a crown of thorns on his head, and he didn't curse at them. Uh, they drove nails into his hands and his feet. They didn't threaten him. When bystanders spit on him, they didn't spit back. When they swore at him, he did not swear back. If we follow Jesus, there will be sacrifice involved. Remember, the will of God is that we suffer as Christ suffered. That may take very many different forms. And for some of our brothers and sisters in Christ in other places like Syria, Iraq, Africa, in the Sudan, there are believers who suffer the ultimate price and are martyred for their faith. But the real test of our faith is we find out what we believe when others mistreat you. And sometimes the real test of our faith is what we don't do, not what we do. Sometimes uh, we grow in our faith but not say, by not saying anything. Again, the text reminds us that the problem is not money. The problem lies in the human heart. My enemy is not the money in the bank account. The enemy is the man in the mirror. It's the person in the mirror when you look at the mirror who worries too much about getting the next dollar. In a real sense, money is like a bait and hook device. Satan uses it to get us hooked on greed and self-indulgence. And we Americans are really, really, really good at that. And he uses our money to turn us away from generosity, especially to the poor. He uses our money to make us think the measure of a man is his bottom line. 
I remember seeing a, uh, I guess it's a meme, it was a picture. One was a, a shack of a house, and the other was this gigantic mansion, but in front of them were two graves that were dug, and they were ac- absolutely the same, both graves. Uh, I think it was Billy Graham who said, you don't see a U-Haul or something behind any hearses because we don't take it with us. Luke 12, 15, Jesus said, Life is not measured by how much you own. Uh, What will your money say? I am struck by what James says in verse 1 about money testifying about us in the last day. He's looking, James is looking at the day of judgment. Of course, for believers in Jesus Christ, we have the Bema Seat judgment, which is not a judgment of our salvation and eternal well-being, but of our works, what we did with our life, our stewardship of our time, resources, and, and skills. And uh, when you stand before the Lord, and we will someday, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you will. Your money will be a witness for or against you. Uh, what will your money say about you? Uh, will it say, well, he, may, he built a great empire, or uh, she always dressed in the latest fashions, or they lived like royalty, or will it say they cared for other people? They invested in the Great Commission. They used money to help others. How we use our resources is a gospel issue. It really is. It should become clear from what I've said that I, too, am feeling the pinch of this. You know, uh, this, this is not an easy passage. And uh, the problem is, is that we, the problem is not that we don't understand it. The problem is we do understand it, and it holds us down. We cannot squirm out from under the impact of uh, what James writes in some deep sense. All of life is about money and time when you think about it. There really isn't a third category. When we stand before the Lord, we'll have to answer for how we spent our time and how we spent our money. May the Lord deliver us from greed that destroys every good intention and blinds us to the hurting world around us. May we who are rich in this world's goods, which is all of us, be generous as uh, to others as God has been generous to us. How you spend your money is a gospel issue. You needn't feel guilty about having money, okay? Let me make that clear. But, or being blessed beyond what we deserve because we, you know, we really are blessed beyond what we deserve because the Bible tells us that we really do deserve hell. But apart from Jesus Christ, that's where we would all end up but thankful for the grace of God that saved us and pray that grace may reach clear into not only our souls, but our finances and what we own. Uh, We must not think that, well, I'm above all of this because money does weird things to the brain. Apart from God's grace, we can become enslaved to our money and insensitive to the needs of others. Uh, In the end, we come back to a familiar theme, Hold tightly, or excuse me, hold lightly to what you value uh, in life. All these material possessions, hold them with a loose grip. I think of a good friend of mine who I went to seminary with. He was an executive at a large company in Indianapolis, moved to Dallas with his wife, going to do seminary, and had all the money he needed to go through four years of seminary, which was quite a bundle of money. And uh, in the first year, because of medical problems with his wife, it wiped out all of their savings. Everything was gone basically in a matter of a couple of months. And so remember to hold lightly to the things that uh, we hold as our source when really they're just a resource 
don't be afraid to let go of the things you own. God never, we, well, we never really owned them in the first place. God is the one who owns them all. Uh, so we don't want to be foolish. Let go of the things we own. Hold lightly to the things that seem to be blessing us. It all belongs to God. So hopefully after this dramatic denunciation of human wealth and of the wealthy, James readers will take a lower view of the value of material things. It's all his anyway. Heavenly, thank you for this day. And thank you for uh, the book of James. Thank you for James being yielded to you to write this.